Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your many blessings and for the opportunity that we have every day to open our eyes and see the wonderful and good things that you're doing, see the connections between people and ministries and how you're working all things together for good and for your glory. We pray, Lord, again for uh, the opportunity we have tonight to learn of you, to um, hear of the things that, that you have done for the sake of sinners and to rejoice and then to be burdened with that uh, task of bringing the gospel to others. And I pray, Lord, that you would, even in the course of our time tonight, remind us of those in our life that, that need to hear your good news, that need to have their eyes open to the gospel and, uh, and for, for us to be faithful witnesses and ministers and testimonies to that. So thank you, Lord, again for the opportunity I had this morning to uh, be at a Trebigo Canyon uh, Community Church. We continue to pray, Lord, for your mercy on them as they continue also to faithfully minister to the people uh, up there in the hills. Uh, we pray for Pastor Robert as well to uh, be an effective minister of your gospel to those folks in Sierra Leone. And I thank you for the good report already that's coming out uh, from him. And we pray, Lord, that your word would go forth and that many would be saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we're continuing on in our study of apologetics. Today is going to be um, a little bit of introduction, and then the next couple weeks we'll really get into some um, apologetics arguments. But just to refresh ourselves on where we've been, we talked about the apologetic task, that is, that we are to live our lives in such a way that they give credibility and defense of the faith, that our very lives are a testament um, no matter how smart or, or foolish you feel you are or how well you can remember all these arguments for the existence of God or mature or younger believer, all these questions, um, they don't matter because God can use you as long as you <laughs> fear the Lord and you've set him apart as holy in your heart. You can be an effective witness uh, for the gospel. God can use you. Um, but we do have uh, sort of this uh, privilege as, as uh, Christians in the 21st century, access to so much information, church history, thousands of years of Christians being uh, formed by the Holy Spirit to address different philosophical questions and issues that we do have a lot of tools uh, under our belt. And so we talked about um, a little bit about that. We talked last time then, well, how then do we persuade people or, or can we persuade people and uh, we made the point that uh, ultimately, people need to be made aware of their sin. That we're not necessarily trying to win friends and influence people. We are, but we aren't. Um, but what we're saying is that God is going to use us to bring the gospel to people. And part of that is for us to present these truths in a winsome ways. Uh, part of that is to uh, give as much of the aroma of life to those who are dying as we can, to shed as much light on uh, those who live in darkness as we can. And so persuasion is maybe not so much about our um, eloquent speech and ability to move audiences with our words, but uh, rather instead to trust that God is going to use us to persuade people. Now, we're coming now to a section, and I, I just kept going back and forth on how I was going to organize this, because uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Romans chapter 1, uh, but the way it's written out, um, we can approach it just verse by verse, or we can jump around a little bit, and there's you know, advantages and disadvantages to all that. We're just going to work through it a little bit, verse by verse. And what we're trying to get to is where Paul is going to say that no one has an excuse to not believe in God. And that's why the title of the message is No Excuses. In other words, one of the tasks I think that we do have as Christians and one of the obligations that um, perhaps you could say we have when we have the chance and as we try to persuade people, as we try to make people aware of their sin, is to knock all of the crutches that people use to prop up their unbelief. There's some irony there, of course, because many accuse us of using religion as a crutch, that we use the Bible as a crutch, that we use faith as a crutch to get by, when in reality, what most are doing is rather than accepting the reality that we live in a universe that's divinely created and ordered, rather than admit that there is such a thing as a conscience and real objective good and evil, 
Uh, people would rather put up defenses and walls and, frankly, lean on crutches so as not to think about and not to address the fact that there's a God to whom we must give an account. And so they are the ones that have crutches, and so we are the ones then, out of kindness, out of our love for others, to try and knock away those excuses from people. Now, we'll get to more specific ways that we do that, and those are maybe some of those classic apologetic-type arguments um, that you hear on the radio or in uh, special Bible studies. Uh, but today, we're just going to lay a little bit of a framework. We've got to start somewhere, and, and I want to I pose a question after we go through the first verses of Romans chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 1, and we'll just go through the first few verses here together. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you notice, that is one epic sentence. <laughs> it's almost like he's in a way giving you the table of contents for the whole book of Romans. And Romans, if you've never studied, studied it before, it is probably the most in-depth theology of the New Testament that you will find in the New Testament. Um, and so don't be surprised there in the introduction if Paul feels like he's, you know, you Get ready for what's about to happen. Look at this big, long sentence, and the whole book of Romans is almost kind of this kind of weightiness. But I do want to break this down because, in a, in a, in a sense, uh, Paul is writing the letter of uh, this letter to the Roman Christians as a sort of apologetic for the Christian faith, an explanation of the Christian faith. And in these few verses, in this one sentence, he essentially stacks it with what the, the root of the gospel is, the deep roots of the gospel. And they are briefly uh, what we have up here, the Trinity, which we see in the mention of God, Christ Jesus, and the Spirit. So you have a Trinitarian God that's very clear here and obvious from the text. You have Paul's dependence and trust on the Holy Scriptures, speaking of the prophets and concerning also the Holy Scriptures. You see that God is a covenant-keeping God, or another way to put that is a God is a God who says what he's going to do, and then he does it. You could also talk about prophecy here, but notice that he mentioned that this was David, uh, that Jesus is the son who descended from David according to the flesh, uh, and so on. And, and that has to do with, of course, a promise, a covenant that God had made to David called the Davidic covenant. So God is a covenant-keeping God. Um, we see also as an essential aspect of the gospel, the humanity and the deity of Jesus. He's declared to be the Son of God, uh, and yet he is born, descended according to the flesh. So he's both human, totally human, but also totally divine. So the Jesus' divine and human nature, you have the essentialness of the resurrection, that he was resurrected from the dead. So it's an essential part of the gospel. And then lastly, you have the whole sense in, of Paul's ministry. What we see from the gospels to Acts and then to these epistles is in itself sort of a testimony of the truth of what Jesus had done, that the commissioning of Paul especially, he's talking about himself, it comes directly from the gospel. So uh, every element of this then is something where we can um, speak to any excuses. Or let me say that another way. Or let me pose a question. Uh, when it comes to defending, you know, apologetics means defending, defending the Christian faith, 
Do we argue from these truths or to these truths? In other words, when I talk to a non-Christian, am I trying to get you to believe these things? Or am I believing these things and speaking to you from the truth of these things? So am I arguing to get you to understand this? Or am I arguing from it? Like it's the, the, the ground that I'm standing on. Now, uh, for the most part, I would say you, you have to have these as your foundation, that these things are grounded. But there is something to say about removing excuses for why we believe these things. So it's, there's a little bit of both and. I think um, fundamentally these are true whether anyone thinks they're true or not. And uh, a claim we're going to make when we get a little bit more into specific um, discussions about, you know, apologetic arguments. Here's why you should believe, and so on. We're going to talk a little bit about what's called um, presuppositionalism. Presuppositionalism. We'll talk about that more later. But the idea behind presuppositionalism is to say that you can't really even talk or think or exist apart from the necessity of God existing that no one really can argue for, <laughs> towards these things, because these are the principles that ground not just the gospel, but reality. And that's the claim of presuppositionalism, is that you can't even make sense of how the world works. Why is there a story to history? It is because there's a story of the gospel being played out. So, when you talk about anything that's happening then in the history of this, you know, world, none of it's arbitrary. You know, the most remote Amazonian tribe, right? The most um, unknown person living in some foreign country that no one's, um, that, that knows three people in his family. Well, all of those histories and stories are a, a part of the gospel story somehow, some way. It explains it. So we need to, in a sense, assume this in order to make sense of life and living. Because what's the alternative? The alternative I'm getting a little bit too detailed, but the alternative is there's no meaning and no purpose to anything that's happening anywhere at any time. There's no God. There is no reason for anything. There's no substance to anything. So what gives meaning to this existence is the gospel. That's kind of what presuppositional is saying. If that's confusing, we'll get into it more. Uh, but the point is, we do argue from these truths, but part of not giving people an excuse and taking that uh, crutch away from them is to say that there are many reasons that these things being true make sense of the world around us. Let me take away your excuses why we can't believe God the Trinity or why you know, you can trust the Bible is accurate, or why Jesus must be man and must be God. We'll, we'll talk about those things. So we can um, then talk about the, the deep roots of the gospel as being a foundation for our, our whole being, our whole apologetic and defense of the faith, but also to say, because we're trying to knock out excuses people have, address criticisms of these areas. So, um, yeah, I'm seeing now maybe I should have done it in a slightly different order. Okay, so um, next, Paul then moves on to who is his target? Who's his gospel target? Who's his apologetics target? Um, and we see that in verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he gives a little bit of um, an introduction to a personal message. He's, he's heard about them. He wants to see them. He wants to minister to them. But he says that his goal, 
is to reap a harvest. In other words, he wants to proclaim the gospel, see people get saved, make disciples amongst them, just as he had been doing amongst the Gentiles. So his ultimate goal in writing this letter is, I can't be there to do that in person just yet. So I'm sending this letter sort of in place of me being able to be there and give my apologetics, give my defense and proclamation of the gospel. And who is this target? Well, you have the brothers, of course, who are, are Christians uh, that are already there in Rome, made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And if you remember all of our discussion about Jews and Gentiles in the book of Ephesians, what they really represent are, are um, not merely an ethnic distinction um, or even a religious distinction, but literally the difference between God's family and God's enemies. The Jews representing God's people, the Gentiles representing those who are opposed to God. And Paul is, of course, has been ministering to these Gentiles and saying, no, no, actually by faith, they are a part of God's family. And in fact, there are Jews who don't believe that Jesus is Messiah, who are not truly Jews, you could say. So the Jew-Gentile distinction uh, is really about the, the true people of, of God uh, who've put their faith in Messiah are now one people. Again, you see in that Ephesians 2 and 3. We also see Paul mention another category of Greeks and barbarians. Uh, another way to think of that distinction is the cultured and the uncultured, um, or the civilized and the uncivilized, the socially accepted and the social outcast, the, 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 the wealthy and prominent and the scavengers and the raiders. So the gospel is going out to the deepest corners of societies, even to the dark places, even to those who seem to function in a completely different way as the rest of society do, Paul is including them as part of his target. He's saying those ones also must hear and must come in. And that's just to say that um, the gospel is intended to go out to everyone. It really is to reach into all parts of a society and a culture and a nation, that there's not one group that you would say, yeah, I think the gospel should go to everyone, but definitely not that group because they are just the worst. They just are awful. I was actually reading uh, just a couple days ago. Um, we have missionaries who serve in Albania, but specifically they reach out to the Roma people. And the derogatory term for them are gypsies. So if you ever heard that term, it's usually referring to this group of people. Now, if you hear from our missionaries about them, it's rough to serve them. A lot of them are alcoholics. A lot of them do roam and have no uh, ties to the, the, the nation that they're a part of. A lot of them are, frankly, not very good people. And it's ironic because Europeans will constantly harp on Americans for their racist past and all these things. But as soon as you mention Roma people, <laughs> they will... <laughs> They're very racist. I mean, oh, no, no. It doesn't count when we're talking about the Roma, though, because they are actually terrible people that you should be discriminating. It's just so funny how they can have that, you know, uh, change of thought, like just mock, you know, Americans for all the racism, discrimination. And then as soon as you bring up Roma, they're like, no, no, but, but they actually deserve that, is what they'll say. It's, it's crazy. Well, the gospel is to go out to even those people you think, no, they actually do deserve all the discrimination and, and hate, you know. Um, that, that is what barbarians, you'd say, could, uh, could speak to. And it also talks about the foolish and the wise, and you might think in terms of, like, uh, academics here, um, but biblical ideas of foolishness and wisdom aren't necessarily about who went to college or what kind of degree you have, but you could say it more this way. The, those who did everything wrong... And those who did everything right. So the fools are the ones who just seem to make every bad decision. Um, the wise are those who seem to do everything right. They're prosperous. Um, they're uh, well off. You know, things just, uh, they seem to make every good decision. And the fools are those who are desperate and constantly needy because they're always suffering the consequences of their foolish actions. Um, but the gospel goes out to rocket scientists and to addicts. It goes out to those who did everything right because even those who did everything right, are they right with God necessarily? No. You just think of Solomon. Why is this man? Thousand wives and concubines. Not a good choice. 
Um, and so everybody needs the gospel. And just in case you're not clear about that, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So it's everybody else. I mean, just everybody in Rome, which is full of all kinds of very cosmopolitan city, of course. It was the center of the empire. So from the highest echelons of society to the lowest, to those in the cities and everywhere else, Paul thinks everyone is, needs to hear the gospel, needs to hear defense of the faith. And these truths that we find in Romans there, they don't just apply to a small section of people. Paul is writing not only to the Romans, but here we are, 21st century America. He's writing to us as well. So uh, the gospel target, the apologetics target, is everyone needs to have their excuses taken away from them. Romans 1, 16 and 17 is really kind of the heart of chapter 1. It's the heart of the whole book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'm actually not going to do a whole lot uh, uh, mention of that because it is both the, what the previous verses have led up to is that we're talking about the gospel and the power of the gospel to change people and what the whole rest of, rest of the chapter and the letter is going to go on and describe. So I'm actually going to say the least about this very, very important section. There are sermons um, that we've done online uh, if you need that. Now, what we're trying to get to is actually here in verses 18 and on, right? And that's where the, the, the message title um, comes from. Starting verse Romans 1.18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Um, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And go on to talk about actually that uh, things like homosexuality and all these other um, sinful behaviors, that they are a result of a person suppressing the truth, not wanting to live truth, um, li uh, lives in light of God's truth that is made evident. But we'll maybe get to that a little bit more later. So the, the question you might have is, do we even need apologetics if it seems like we can't persuade people, that's God's business, um, as we said last time, but also that here, actually, Paul is saying it's clear. <laughs> you know, it's clear that God exists. It's clear uh, who he is, and so no one actually has an excuse now, that's just something to think about as we work through this. But again, let's, let's work through some observations about this passage, about people and what they do, where they're at. I know some of this is a little bit of a rehash of what we talked about in the past couple weeks. But again, we're trying to get to this place where we're saying um, everyone is without excuse before God. The first thing that Paul says here in Romans 18 is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, the premise is that everyone is ungodly and unrighteous. We already spoke of our innate sinfulness, how it blinds us, but that's just a reiteration of that same idea from Ephesians 2, that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born as sinners. We enter the world with already um, a predisposition. Some, I remember this is a deep debate in, in um, even in linguistic study. Is a person, when they're born, a blank slate and you just write on it 
right? And they're talking about language. Uh, or is there a predisposition towards learning language? And that was a big debate. Um, it, it overlapped with psychology and other issues. But uh, as it turned out, um, there's more evidence that we have a predisposition for learning languages. And I would say that's part of being made in the image of God. But that we're not actually just blank slates, that we come into the world neutral. And that's, again, a very big idea in terms of psychological studies, not just linguistic studies, is do you come into the world neutral, blank slate, and you are just going to be the product of what your parents did and said, you know, what Sesame Street did and said, what, you know, the, the, you know, Fox News or CNN said, what your teacher said, and you just absorb all that, and then you're going to turn out just as a product of all this input, because you're a blank slate, other people are writing on you, or do you come into the world preset for something? Well, I would argue that the Bible is saying, just like with language that made, being made in the image of God, we have a, we have a, a predisposition, they call it a universal grammar, but that all human beings, normal human beings, born with a normal human mind, they are predisposed to learning language. They're going to learn language. If they're exposed to language, I would say that human beings, biblically speaking, are predisposed towards sin. That it doesn't matter if you grew up in the best home, you know, with the best pastors, and your parents were the best people, and all of your siblings were, you know, the best, you would still be a sinner. That's a biblical worldview, is that we are inclined towards sin. Everyone is ungodly. Everyone is unrighteous. And one of the um, manifestations of that is that we will, because of, and by that unrighteousness, suppress the truth. What does that mean? Why do unbelievers suppress truth about God? Because they're ungodly. That's a presupposition. Just like we had those foundations of the gospel in that first slide, we have all of us coming into the world as sinners with a predisposition, a foundation of being against God, being selfish, seeking our own interests, wanting to make ourselves right, wanting to make everyone else do what we think is right. Just ask any two-year-old. <laughs> How should things run according to a two-year-old? We should do everything the way they say. I mean, it's, it's as, as clear as that. They don't come and, and with a, immediately, like, you know what? I realize I'm just but one of eight billion people on this planet. And who am I to think that the world should revolve around me. No two-year-old does that, all right? Every two-year-old is like, no, that's mine. <laughs> no, give it to me. You think you're sleeping right now, but actually you need to take care of whatever my need is. Their world is themselves. Because of that, you'll suppress truth. Unbelievers will claim that there's a lack of evidence, and that's what results in their unbelief in God. But Paul says that the ungodly, sinners, they are actively refusing any truth that points to God. So the problem isn't a lack of information, but an active defiance to that information. We'll talk a little bit about that, um, probably not today, um, but um, we're not saying that non-Christians can't add two and two, or that they can't make scientific claims or um, even moral judgments but that they have to actively suppress truth and, uh, in order to get through with their lives without having tremendous pangs of conscience and be burdened by the things they're doing and thinking. They have to suppress truth just to get through the day. But, but just like a Christian, and this is going to be a, a, a little bit of a, a theme, just like a Christian can know what the Bible is saying, and you're going to Sometimes you're going to sin. You lapse in your judgment. You say, man, I shouldn't have done that. Why did I think that? Why did I say that? So it is that the non-Christian, even when they're actively suppressing the truth, there are times when clear thoughts and assessments that point to, you know, this can't really be all that there is, is there? You know, I do really think some things are truly right and wrong. You know, a sunset really is objectively beautiful and not just my electrons firing. You know, they have moments of clarity being made in the image of God and recognize that just as, you know, believers can have moments of unclarity 
and suppressing where, no, God, I know what you say about this. I'm just going to do this anyway. Um, and, and we sin. So um, anyway, what truth is being de- defied? What truth is being defied? Well, Paul says that it is his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. They have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So creation itself reveals God's eternal power and divine nature. The creation. What's in the creation? Everything except God. (laughs) So when we say the creation, um, like in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, there you're talking about the, the sun, the moon, the stars, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. We're talking about celestial things, of course, which ought to make you very humbled in worship. But when Paul says here that the creation and the things that have been made um, are declaring God's invisible attributes, we're talking about everything within creation. So that's even things like our conscience is telling us about a moral world that we live in. Of course, things like, you know, the mountains and the trees and the laws of physics, but also things like beauty and also things like um, justice. Those don't seem like the normal kinds of created things, but they're a part of who we are um, in our assessments of the world and our understanding of the world. You, 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 you live in a moral universe, therefore there's good and evil. So even things like justice are parts of this truth that is being revealed constantly that show his power and his divine nature. And uh, we're, we're going to talk more about that uh, in the future. But um, God is, or Paul is saying very clearly that people do perceive these things, but they have to actively suppress them because the evidence is so overwhelming. It has such great implications for their life that they must suppress them. How do people suppress these sorts of truths? Well, there is just the obvious act of lying or supplanting with other truths. He talks about exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So um, that's, uh, that would be literally just to, well, uh, instead of, um, instead of a, a one God who rules and reigns over all things, instead of, let's just make God like an idol. And so you have, of course, many religions um, and all the idols uh, that those religions make up. That's one way that people suppress their truth. It's false religions. Um, make God like us, like the Romans and the Greeks did. Uh, another way um, is to uh, that we exchange the truth about God for for a lie is to uh, actively ignore it. Now, this didn't happen so much in the days of Paul. Um, say, like most people were vaguely like spiritual. You know, they you know for whatever that's worth. Most people had some understanding of like a religious underpinning. Maybe a lot. Maybe there's some closet atheists and and things like that. Um, but they they knew that they lived in some kind of moral world. When I talk about ignoring, it's more of a phenomenon that we see now, which is completely to distract yourself <laughs> from having to deal with the reality of God. Couldn't really do this until now where we have the, the technology and the time to continually blast your attention constantly with distractions to even keep you from thinking about God. Um, when, we were, um, when we used to have book tables at UCI um, and uh, just to you know, pray with people, talk about the Bible, just whatever. You know, this is a Bible book table. The hardest thing to do actually was to get people to to care. You had a bunch of young people at sort of the prime of their life, especially at the beginning of of the school year, a lot of freshmen, and they're just so excited about, you know, this new environment they're in and the friends that they're making and the things that are learning. It was it was very disconcerting that some of them just didn't even care. They were so distracted by the world um, 
they were so um, consumed and, and had an ability, even then, 20 years ago, to not have to think of spiritual things. We had a lot of things going on. Uh, you can include not just entertainment, but of course, you know, drugs, alcohol, addictions. Um, you know, those are all ways that people try to suppress this truth, try to avoid thinking about God. Uh, it's very, very easy to do. I'm not saying it wasn't easy to do back then, but it was a little bit different time when you didn't have uh, literally the entire world at your fingertips in your pocket. Um, they had to wrestle with these things sometimes, okay? Um, that's, to me, actually one of the hardest things to address is getting people to care even about their eternal souls when they have so many ways they can distract them from it. And of course, the... Another way that people suppress their truth, and we'll see that, um, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll get there from 26 and on, is just to go all in on sin. Just to go, just dive uh, headlong into living as absolutely sinful a life as you possibly can. And, uh, and Paul talks about that. Um, you know, since they did not see, this is verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So you have some who suppress the truth by exchanging, you know, let's just make God into something more familiar, make myself out to be God, etc. There's those who suppress the truth by completely kind of ignoring it, being distracted from it, going into uh, entertainment or addiction or, or something just to keep themselves from having to face it. And then you have others that just go all in. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to go to hell I don't care. I'm just going to do what I want. Those are three different ways that people suppress the truth. Um, but what is the common root or, or the commonality between all these suppressors? It's that they know. They are without excuse. And Paul calls them all fools. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I don't think it means they legitimate think, legitimately think that there is no God. Rather, the heart of the fool is the one who suppresses, who's trying to convince themselves there is no God. They're telling themselves, yeah, 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 you know, it, it's okay for me to keep doing this because there's no God, right? And that kind of uh, self-awareness that they're only trying to kid themselves. So again, is there even a point to making unbelievers aware of these truths if they're going to suppress it in unrighteousness anyway. In other words, should I even bother to give uh, some kind of response to people who are just saying wild and you know, crazy things about um, those uh, gospel truths? Well, I will say up front, you know, different apologetic methods, they answer this question in a lot of different ways. And there is, I will admit, some a little bit of a paradox. It's the same paradox that we talked about already, um, that you had people like Pharaoh and Judas that aren't going to repent. God knows they're not going to repent. Can they even repent? But yet God does call them to repent. So what is it, God? Like, do you want them to repent or not? And yet there's a premise throughout the whole Old Testament and the New Testament as well, but you see it a lot in the prophets. Whenever God sends a prophet with a message of judgment, it is always implied you need to repent. Even though these things are prophecies, like Babylon is coming. But why is God sending the prophets to say Babylon is coming? There's always a thread of, so you should repent. Don't let this happen to you. Now, God, don't you, don't you already know what's going to happen? Aren't you the one sort of designing this? Well, that's, a, you know what? You can take it up with God. If you don't like these kinds of paradoxes, take it up with God. But God does intend for people to repent. 
whenever he gives a message of judgment, even if he knows they're not going to repent. It just, and you just have to, to wrestle with that or deal with that. The same you could go to Jonah and Nineveh. It sure seemed like there was, they were not going to repent there in Nineveh. That's Jonah's, um, you know, Jonah was concerned about it, but it almost sounds like God's message was like, for sure, judgment is coming. Yet it was averted. That's God's prerogative. So what we must care about is what is God asking us to do? What does God want us to do? Does he want us just to let people make excuses and never address them? Does he want us to simply give up and become what they call hyper-Calvinists? And uh, the, the hyper-Calvinists, um, this is a little bit of a caricature, but it's said like, well, you know, God knows who's going to get saved anyway, so you don't have to do anything. No. Look at Proverbs 26. <clears throat> and this becomes a little bit of our, our setup. Psalm 14.1, what? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Right? Uh, Romans 1 uh, proclaiming to be wise, they are fools. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, this is, <laughs> this is kind of silly, because some people you know, that are critics of the Bible say, there's a contradiction there. So one verse you say, answer a fool. Next verse says, don't answer a fool. You got an obvious country. Well, A, this is wisdom literature. So wisdom literature, it doesn't operate on a necessarily true principle. These are principles of living. They apply when they apply kind of thing. But for sure, the, this, uh, the writer of Proverbs here does not want fools to get off the hook. In fact, you can interpret answer uh, Proverbs 26, 4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. It's not a recommendation to never address a fool. Rather, it's saying when you do address a fool, don't do it in such a way that you also look like a fool. Now, it's then not saying don't answer a fool, but I think both of them are saying you need to answer a fool, just not according um, to his folly, and, uh, and that means, well, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about presuppositionalism, but you, what you don't want to do is take the premises of a fool's argument and say, okay, let's operate off of that premise, because you're operating on the world view of, of a fool. So, for example, I'll give you an example. So, um, someone says, well, you cannot uh, believe in God because you can only believe in scientism, right? Meaning, only that which you can replicate in a lab, only that which you can measure or taste or weigh is admissible as truth, right? So, they are saying that you cannot believe in God because you can't weigh it, you can't measure it, you can't, you know, make an experiment like you can on a, if you found a new creature in the Amazon. You could observe it and you can make measurements and all those sorts of things. We well, can't do that with God, therefore you cannot believe in God. Well, it'd be foolish then to embrace scientism, that truth is only determined by what you can measure, taste, feel, observe. Because what's going to happen? You're going to come to the same conclusion, right? So if you, if you take that person's worldview, um, you're going to be made to be a fool just like he is for not believing uh, in God. You can't take his premise and try to make it better. Um, instead, what you should do is show the person how foolish that worldview is. So don't... Uh, answer him according to his folly, lest you be like him. So don't, don't think uh, that only that which you can taste, you know, touch, feel, measure 
is true. Instead, point out, answer him according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So here's what you say to someone who's an empiricist or a scientism, you know, believes in scientism. You say, so that truth that you can only believe that which you can measure, observe, weigh, that truth, can you measure that truth or weigh it? Okay? So again, the statement, you can only trust or believe that which you can see, measure, weigh, observe. Well, that statement itself, is that something you can measure or weigh? That truth statement? I mean, it's a statement, right? It's a truth. It, 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 it sort of um, it, it flips in on itself when you say, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Did you weigh that statement? Did you observe that statement? Did you measure that statement? Show me. No, you, you can't actually live like that because there's a lot of things that you cannot measure or weigh. Like, you know, I, I think there's good and evil in the world. Can you weigh that or measure that? Or you, you love a child? I mean, everyone seems to think there's such a thing as love, but can you weigh or, or measure that? No, not, not really. I mean, you can't hardly reduce it to even chemicals and, and electrons. Not, not, not really. And to reduce it to that, I mean, it's offensive, I think, to anyone that says, you know, I really love my child or my spouse or something. So anyway, I think then um, in God's sovereign plan, part of how he wants people to be made aware of their sin and their need for a savior is, like we said before, we have a clear, consistent testimony. We tell people, show people that the real issue is sin. And we take away the excuses that they have. Now, someone could still just be so dedicated to suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, they're not, gonna, they're not ever going to believe. That's between them and God, really. But God uses different means to save people, different methods. And the main method he's using is Christians speaking into, living in the world of unbelievers, hearing you know, when we need to be sympathetic, being sympathetic, and we kind of talked about that and we talked in our first study, pointing out sin when we need to and saying that's what's really keeping you from this, and also to knock away these crutches that people have. That's why Paul would do things like in Acts 17 where he stood on Mars Hill and he made a speech and he told all these uh, people who were there to talk about religion and philosophy, he gives a defense for Christianity. Well, why would he do that? Why would he knock away their excuses? Because he said, and I, I noticed that you have a, a tomb to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you. And he speaks to um, their worldview, and he tries to knock out some of their excuses. Why does he do that? Because not, he's not uh, a fatalist. Well, God's going to save who's going to save or whatever. No, he knows that God is going to use his efforts. He's going to use his um, truth to for those who are chosen by God to hear and receive the gospel. So we have a task to do, not so much because we think there's some surefire way to get someone to believe in God, but because this is what God has called us to do, to address the fool who says in their heart there is no God and take away their excuses um, and show them how only a Christian worldview can make sense of the world that we live in. So, all that was introduction. <laughs> the next few weeks, we'll get into some of those um, arguments and, and uh, what, what, is, what makes sense about them, what's good about them, a little bit of why we do them, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll maybe have a little bit more discussion as well. Um, but I'm excited about that because you sort of get to the meat and potatoes, why we can believe Scripture or how the creation speaks to um, God's eternal power and divine nature. And the, those are fun discussions to have. Maybe we'll have some more slides and pictures and stuff. But let me pray and close. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I, I do know that in my own heart, it, it couldn't have been just up to me and my wisdom and my um, you know, righteous uh, determination to say, you know what, God, I, you know, 
You're, you're, you're lucky that such an astute, smart person such as me figured this all out and believed the gospel. I do know that at its core, um, each one of us um, needs, to, needs to say that you saved us despite us, in a sense. We, we were stubborn, we were suppressing the truth, but when you opened our eyes by our spirit, we started to see the sense it made that your worldview, that your um, description of how things are in your word, that they line up with reality. And so I, I do know that it is part of your design, that, um, that we do then proclaim truths to others, take away their excuses in the hopes for our part and from our, our limited understanding that you might use it in some way to bring a soul to an awareness of the fact that they're suppressing the truth, of the fact that they are sinners in need of forgiveness, of the fact that uh, we are all wasting our lives and our time if there is really no meaning or purpose to it all. And so at the end of the day, again, it just comes down to us being faithful to you. You're, you're the one in charge of the results. Help us just to live in such a way that we can, uh, with uh, confidence and with a clear conscience, say that We've put you um, as Lord in our hearts, and we want those whom we love around us, even our enemies, to know that they must submit their lives to a God who holds all things into account. So Lord, help us to do that. I know it can be so discouraging in this day and age when there's a lot of hostility to the things that we believe to be hostile and antagonistic in return, but instead, Lord, help us to clearly, charitably, um, calmly but firmly affirm that these things are true, that these things are necessary to be true, or else there is no meaning or purpose to it all. Help us to be faithful to that. And we pray, Lord, that we'd uh, have some encouragement in our time as we eat and, and drink and enjoy that, that fellowship together. May it be an encouragement to our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you all.